Welcome to the Faith Christian Fellowship of Montego Bay's podcast. We are reaching for His glory through building and teaching. I hope you are encouraged and edified by this message. The doctrine of Christ. And today we want to continue to just ask God to grant unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ and trust Him to continue to work in our lives. And you know, Jesus is a very important subject all over the world. And so the doctrine of Christ becomes very, very important because as we've said before in times past, there are those who believe that Jesus, yeah, was a good man. He was a prophet and all of that. But some say he wasn't the son of God. And some say that he certainly wasn't God and all kinds of stuff. But the doctrine of Christ uh, is going to speak to a lot of those things. And tonight, we want to continue to zero in on the incarnation. It is a very important part of the doctrine of Christ, the incarnation. So all of the New Testament writers attest to the fact of the incarnation, all of them. So it is uh, an established truth as it relates to the incarnation. The birth of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. And the Bible writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us detail of this miraculous event. One of the most notable miracle that has ever occurred in the history of man. Of course, as you heard before in the review, incarnation is about God taking on himself human flesh, all right? So God became man in Jesus, or put it another way, deity, took upon himself humanity. We'll go into that a little bit more. Deity took upon himself humanity. Now, all men have been begotten of a human father and born of a human mother since the creation of Adam and Eve, the first parents, right? So, they were created, Adam and Eve. But since Adam and Eve, all men, uh, and when I say men, I'm talking about mankind. Uh, no gender here. So all of mankind since Adam and Eve has been, have been begotten of a human father and born of a human mother. So this is very important. But this was not the case with the Messiah. He would be born of a human mother, yes, in Mary, a virgin, which is very important, we're coming back to that, but he would not be begotten of a human father. He was born of a human mother, but would not be begotten of a human, fa a human father because God was his father. The word begotten, really means to produce or it also means something creates something else when something creates something else 
or it means to produce, talking about what the Greek says about it, it means to produce or uh, when something creates something else. So God divinely put something inside of Mary to produce or beget Jesus, which was not anything that was produced via Adam. It came from God himself. It was the very makeup of God. In other words, whatever God put in Mary that caused Mary to get pregnant was not via Adam. Therefore, God was not of the Adamic nature. Now, the Bible says that in, in uh, I'm looking for the, my scripture here. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I want to read that scripture, that the child, Jesus, would be the seed of the woman. I want to read that scripture in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to prove that point. Because generally, when they give the genealogy in the Bible, and all of that, they would talk about the history of the man. Because in the Old Testament, men were regarded as price possession over women, so to speak, and had a lot of, uh, what I would say, I don't want to say talk, but a lot of importance as compared to a woman. But here, we're seeing that the prophecy, the word of the Lord is going forth that this child Jesus, sorry, would be the seed of the woman. So in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says, I will put enmity, enmity between thee and the woman. That's the serpent and the woman. And the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. And though the serpent shall bruise his heel. Very interesting. We see here that the Bible in Genesis 3 verse 15 speaks to the child as the seed of the woman. Yet in Isaiah, it speaks to the same child in Isaiah 7 verse 14 as the son of God. So the virgin birth speaks to the fact that man is not in any way the source of the conception of Jesus. This is why the virgin birth is very important. The virgin birth, because the fact that Mary was a virgin means she was not touched by a man. So the, 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 the um, conception could not be by a man in any way, shape, or form. And God knows what he's doing because if Mary was not a virgin, then there would be all kinds of argument as to the conception of Jesus. So it was God himself that put that seed in Mary's womb, womb sorry, to um, cause the conception of Jesus. I find it very interesting that on many occasions, 
many occasions in the Bible, Jesus said that God was his father. He referred to God as his father. I and my father are one. My father which sent me and all of that. Many occasions, Jesus said God was his father. And he also referred to Mary as his mother on different occasions. Remember, even on the cross, he said, woman, behold thy son referring to Mary as his father, but in, as, as his mother, sorry, but he never ever referred to Joseph as his father. We're talking about the incarnation here. And the reason why he never referred to Joseph as his father was because God was his father. So the source of him being here, being here, was not human, it was divine. So one would ask, how could conception take place without the sperm of a man interacting with a woman and, and all of that? How, how, how is that possible? And that's very interesting. But you know, the scripture already has basis for that because we see on many occasions in the scripture where God demonstrated his amazing hand. You know, the Bible in Genesis talk about the spirit of God moving or hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was without form and void. It was, it was without any order and it was void, mean, meaning it was empty. It couldn't give birth to anything. Then the spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the waters. And all of a sudden, that earth that was empty, God said, started to speak to the earth to bring forth stuff. The very earth that was empty and it started to bring forth stuff so he said let the earth bring forth grass did you know that when G when god said that there was no farm store around there was no grass seed around anywhere he did not bring the grass into existence based on anything that existed before he brought it into existence without any source on earth. So there are two words that were used in that are used in Genesis for creation. And we will go into them a little bit more fulsome when we speak on, on the doctrine of man. But one of those, uh, one of the words is, is the word asa, A-S-A, asa. And it means to bring to sorry, to fashion existing material into something new. Right, Asa means to fashion existing material into something new. So you have the raw material and you use it and fashion something. So it's like um, you have the 
bauxite, aluminum material, and you fashion it into pots and cars and different things. That's us fashioning existing material into something new. So, for example, when God used the dust of the earth, the earth to make the body of man, that was Asa. He fashioned existing material in something, into something new. But the next word he used, used there is also bara, B-A-R-A. And bara means to bring something into existence out of nothing. So I am saying this to show you that God is able to do the impossible. So as I said before, the, the grass was brought into existence out of nothing. But not that, not only that, when God wanted a human spirit, there was nothing like it around. He brought it into existence. The, the human being was the first of its kind. So what I'm saying to you is that God has the ability and certainly had the ability to touch Mary's womb divinely and cause her to conceive. It did not have to happen by a man. Because he's God, he's able to bring something into existence out of nothing. So the angel told Mary, now follow me very, very carefully. Remember in Genesis, the spirit of the Lord moved or hovered over the face of the water. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the earth or the waters and brought forth the earth. And then in Luke, when Mary said, how can this be? How, how is it that I'm going to conceive? The angel said, the power of the highest, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you. So God already did it in Genesis when he was bringing the earth into existence. And now he was doing it with Mary again demonstrating is bara capacity bringing something into existence out of nothing so the angel told mary that the power of the highest would overshadow you and cause you to conceive and that was um the hand of god in no uncertain way but this also indicates how God controls uh, time. Because if God had done that today, if, if that was done today, you would have people arguing about the science, how oh, it's possible that somebody could have injected her with something and all that kind of stuff. So when Mary conceived, there was no discovery of the kind of science that is available today to bring any argument as to what could be an alternate source of Mary's conception. God did it in a time 
when there was no such revelation to man of the science that is available today. So God in his wisdom always, always knows when to do stuff and is always on time so that man cannot credibly argue in any way about what God has done or even what he's doing. Now, the importance of the virgin birth is critical. It is upon the fact of the virgin birth that this biblical doctrine hangs. Because if Jesus is not virgin born, sinless, if he was born via a man, if Mary was conceived or conceived via Joseph, that means Jesus would not be sinless because he would be born after the Adamic nature. So he himself would need a savior. Now, if he himself needed salvation, then he could not be our savior, our Lord, our King. And the entire redemptive plan would fall powerless to the ground. Hence the importance of the virgin birth. This doctrine hangs critical on the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The nature of the incarnation is given to us by Paul in the Philippians epistle in uh, what we call the sevenfold uh, humiliation of the Christ of God. So the seven steps of Christ uh, humiliation are noted in Philippians chapter two and we're going to read it from verse six down to verse eight. Verse six down to verse eight, and I want you to take careful note of, of that. Who being in the form of God, talking about Jesus, thought, uh, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. I want to read it one more time. So verse six, Philippians chapter two, we're looking here at the sevenfold humiliation of the Christ of God. It says, who being in the form of man, sorry, in the who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of God. And being found in him, 
and found, being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We're going to explore those two verses for the next 20 minutes or so and pick out some truth out of that. First of the sevenfold uh, humiliation of the Christ of God, Christ of God that we're going to pick out um, of that is one who being in the form of God, talking about God, Jesus being in the form of God. Form of God here speaks to the attributes of God. So we're talking now about him being human and divine. Although he was on earth, he was in the form of God. Form doesn't mean, um, it's not talking about uh, merely a, a mere shadow. It is actually talking about the very essence of God. So form here speaks to the attribute of attributes of God. And we went through the attributes of God, six attributes of God, be God being eternal, self-existent, um, immutable, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. And all those six attributes that we attributed to God, the Father, are also attributed to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. So he was in the form of God. Although he was man, he was in the form of God. He was operating as God. So he was God and man. And of course, that's what um, incarnation is speaking to. God and man. Deity taking on humanity. So the first point here is that he being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Christ on earth, was in the form of God. And it is very interesting because that is what a lot of the religious folks couldn't reconcile with. They said he was blaspheming. So when he said to um, people, thy sins be forgiven, they said, who else can forgive sins but God? Where did you come from? You're not God. But yes, he was God. Philippians says he was in the form of God. He, in other words, he was operating as God. He, he, he was in the form of God. The, the godly attributes were in him. He has never, in other words, let's say it this way. At no point in time had he stopped being God. When he was on earth, the human part of him was most active, but he was still God. Then after it says, who being in the form of God, it says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So that's the second point. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he had equal status with God. 
in other words, as I said, just as the attributes were for God, they were still applicable to him because he never ceased being God. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Other people thought it was robbery to be equal with God, but he thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he knew who he was, knew that he was God, and knew that he always existed as God. So the, the people who lived in the time that Jesus walked on the earth got the opportunity of a lifetime and did not capitalize on it. Because even when we look back at the name he was called in the Old Testament, remember, he was Emmanuel. He was God with us. But they couldn't handle it, so they missed God. Number three was that he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. In other words, although he was God with all the attributes of the Father God in him, he did not cling to the advantages of that status of being equal with God. He, he stepped into humanity, which was a, a step down for him. Maybe we'll come to that a, a, a little in, in a moment, um, talking about that a little bit more. But he did not cling to the advantages of uh, the status of being equal with God. He made himself of no reputation. In other words, you know, we sing the song sometimes that says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Well, guess what? He could in terms of ability, but he couldn't in terms of destiny. So although he had the ability to show his hand, the Bible said, well, what we're saying is that he did not cling to the advantages um, of being equal with God. He made himself of no reputation. In fact, Isaiah prophesied and said that when we see him, there is no beauty that we would desire of him. Because he's not coming, um, wheeling his hand as God. To say, look at me, you know, you know I'm God and uh, I can wipe out all of you right now. You better stand at attention. No, he made himself of no reputation. So Isaiah said, there's no beauty that we should desire of him. And he goes on to say, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So they slapped him and said, prophesy to us. Who is doing this to you? Of course he could have told them because the omniscience attribute was in him. Even right there on the cross, he knew everything. But he made himself of no reputation. As I said, 
he could call the 10,000 angels in terms of ability, but he couldn't in terms of destiny. And I think we as uh, human beings who live today have to take a big lesson out of that because so much, so many times we allow status to get in the way of uh, us and our destiny and pursuing all that God wants to do in our lives. Because of our status in life, we find it difficult to lay down all of that reputation. And that's why Jesus thought one time and said, hey, you know, it's easy. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He told the rich man one time, said, hey, sell all you have and give it to the poor. He could not imagine himself without that reputation. So the Bible said he went away sorrowful. And by the way, let me just say something about that camel and the eye of a needle. You know, I think most of you would know by now, that's not talking about a regular needle that you sew with. When it says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, in Bible days, they used to have um, this particular way that they make the entry into the stable that they would put the camel. They wouldn't have gates like we have today that they would lock the camels inside. So it was like a winding entry into the stable itself that they would actually have to push the camel through, turning it around and around to get into the stable so that the camel couldn't come out by itself. And that was called a needle. So Jesus was teaching and he said, it's easier for that camel to find its way through that winding, curvy thing to go into the stable than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. By the way, he did not say it was impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. He just said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle because the rich man riches had stronghold on him. In other words, like how Jesus made himself of no reputation, it was hard for a rich man to separate from his riches. His riches was his reputation. Number four, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Here's he humbling himself. So he came and remember that Jesus never died for himself because he was sinless. He did not need a savior. He served the world in dying for us. But he demonstrated that servant leader that all of us ought to be while he was on earth. So we know the story and we know in church where they still practice the washing of the saints feet. How did that come about? Well, Jesus and his disciples were to meet at a particular house to have um, fellowship and all of that. And in those days, in every house, or most houses, 
was a servant or what we call a maid. And one of the purpose of the maid was to wash the feet of the guests when they arrived so that they wouldn't dirty the house, so to speak, or mess up the house. Because remember that in those days, they didn't have barber green roads, asphalted roads like we have today. It was marl. So a lot of dust was around and um, they wore sandals. So you can understand um, that old package there. So the disciples arrived at the house before Jesus and no maid was there. So they all stood outside because, of course, a maid was kind of looked look down on. So they stood outside because they would not wash their own feet. That was beneath them. When Jesus arrived and inquired why they were outside, he understood that there was no maid. And Jesus decided to become their servant. Demonstrate the servant leader that he is and said, okay, I will wash your feet. And when the disciples saw Jesus in action as a servant leader, they said, no, 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 you can't do that. In other words, no, you have to keep your reputation. But they didn't realize that's the very thing that Jesus was about. Uh, he left his reputation, so to speak or made himself of no reputation. He wasn't using his status, his advantages, his status as God to wheel over anybody's head. He said, I will wash your feet. And Peter said, no, 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 no. But that's the servant leader that Jesus was. And you know, interestingly, that same thing obtained today. Because so many times, so many of our contemporary leaders feel that they're bigger than some simple task. But Jesus demonstrated servant leadership to his disciples. And may I say, just add to that, that the washing of the saints' feet was never really meant to be a doctrine. Now, I'm, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you want to wash each other feet, it's a sin and you can't go ahead and do it. But I'm saying if you don't do it, you're not in sin either. It was never meant to be a doctrine. Jesus was simply demonstrating servant leadership. I know there are some people who do it every month and all of that, but you don't have to use that to, to, to prove any sort of humility. There are many, many other ways to do it. Jesus demonstrated he was a servant leader. And I'm saying we need so much more of that today. We need servant leaders. When we have servant leaders, it makes a difference in terms of um, connecting with people. And sometimes uh, leaders walk so high that, you know, you can't connect with them. I have to tell you that it disturbs me when I go to a meeting and the people who come to speak are escorted in by 
security force, the security force, and escorted out at the end of the meeting by the security force. So um, they can't interact with the very people they're ministering to, speaking to. Uh, Jesus wouldn't do that. I'm telling you that he was a servant leader. I have a difficulty with you ministering to me if I can't have a conversation with you. If you're busy, I understand that. But just to think that, well, no, you're just a minister and leave me alone. Uh, we can't have a conversation because we're not on the same level. I have a difficulty with that. And unfortunately, some of that happens in the body of Christ. Well, where were we? I think we're at number five, right? Yes. Number five, he was made in the likeness of man, according to Philippians. We, he was made in the likeness of man. We did read that in Philippians chapter two, and I think it's about verse seven, that he was made in the likeness of man. Again, I want to make the point that that was a step down for Jesus. He's stepping from um, the, from deity to humanity. You have to understand that um, as God, deity, he's not subjected to certain things that he would be subjected to um, as, as a human. But he was made in the likeness of man. Now, likeness here, that's a very important word because likeness here is linked all the way back to Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it talks about how God created man is in his own image and likeness. And the word image there means character. So um, it is most interesting that it didn't say that he was made in the image of man, but rather in the likeness because you see, image, image in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 means nature, while likeness means character. So man was made in God's nature and character. Now, in Philippians chapter 2 here, Jesus was made in the likeness of man. So the characteristics that man had on earth, Jesus had those characteristics. The Bible said he was tempted like we are tempted, but yet without sin. So he had our character, but the nature was different. Because if he had the nature of man, that means he would have to be born after the, after the Adamic um, nature. And which means he would not be sinless. So it's amazing how the Bible is straight when you understand it. It never said here in Philippians that he was in the image and likeness of man. He was in the likeness, which means the character of man, but he was not in the image of man. He was not according to the image of man. He was according to the image of God. He had the nature of God and not 
the, the, the nature of man as in the Adamic nature. Number six, it says, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Oh yes, we need to take a page out of that one. He humbled himself. First of all, we want to point out there that humility is something that you are required to do. I know that sometimes we pray and ask, and ask God if he would humble us, but I am sure you don't want God to answer that prayer. Right throughout the Bible, the Bible always speaks of man humbling themselves. So he said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself and you shall be exalted. Chronicles says, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves. It always requires you to humble yourself. Because if God humbles you, you, you can be in serious trouble. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar went and messed around the holy things in the house of God one time, and God humbled him. And for years, he was walking on his hands and his feet out there like an animal. The Bible said his fingernail and, and his nails grew long like claws and his hair grew long and twisted, humbled. So don't, go, don't, don't, don't ask God to humble you. That's a prayer that you want to withdraw as quickly as possible. The Bible said you should humble yourself. And here we're seeing in Philippians chapter 2 that he, Jesus, humbled himself in staying human for the time necessary so that he could redeem mankind. That's why the Bible tells us that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit, haughty spirit before a fall. And so it's very, very important that we learn from Jesus, our teacher, our master, and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he will exalt us when we humble ourselves. So the way to hop is down. All right. Number seven of the list here is he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's another demonstration of his uh, humility. He became obedient unto death. Oh yeah, his flesh was crying out in the garden. He said, Father, if it's ever willing, if, if it's ever possible, let this cup pass. But ultimately, he was obedient unto death. That word obedient speaks to uh, being willing. So he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I'm willing to submit my will to your will. It was a choice that he made. And it, it was a lesson for all of us. Because the Bible says that if we are willing and obedient, we shall eat the good of the land. And one of the, the, the difficulty that 
kingdom citizens have is to humble themselves and be obedient to what God is saying. Because sometimes what he's asking of us, what he's requiring of us is not necessarily what our flesh want to do. But we have to learn to humble ourselves and be obedient to him so that we can become all that he wants us to be. So when Abraham told, um, when God told Abraham to offer up Isaac, Abraham demonstrated that uh, humility in being obedient to God. You cannot go wrong being obedient to God. And you really start out by obeying the simple instructions of his word. And as you progress with that, then eventually you're going to get to a place where he's got to start speaking to you and giving you certain instructions. I promise you that not every instruction that he gives you, you're going to be comfortable with or want to do, but you cannot go wrong being obedient to God. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So when they arrested him, Oh my, Jesus could have easily just breathe and them, those guys would fall down. But he humbled himself and allowed the arrest to take place, allow the trial to take place. And I want you to just imagine how, how difficult, the, difficult it would be on the human part of him was obedient even to the death of the cross because he knew that the destiny was the redemption of man. And without him being obedient to the end, then that destiny would be compromised. And that speaks to the, both the human and the divine part of him working together. So tonight, I want to remind you that the incarnation is not just simply a story or a, a, a knowledge that we should have. There are lessons in there for us to understand how uh, we need to humble ourselves as man and allow God's purposes to be effected in and through our lives. The doctrine of Christ is one of the most amazing. And we thank God that, as the Bible says, that he, God, was in Christ reconciling, or the word reconcile means to bring back together. God was in Christ reconciling, reconciling the world unto himself and that happened through the obedience of our lord and savior jesus christ we thank you so much for joining us today god bless you and have a great day you may contact us by email at fcfmontegobay at gmail.com or follow us on instagram at fcfmobay 
and on Facebook at FCF Montego Bay.